And once again, thank you all for being here today. As we've mentioned earlier, we are going through what we're calling the Jesus Series. And all throughout the, well, for most of the school year, from September through the beginning of May, we are taking a look at the life of Jesus in a mostly chronological order, going through the four biographies that we have of Jesus, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going through this series together in an effort to get to know Jesus better, not based on just some kind of church folklore ideas or some contemporary ideas about what Jesus must have been like. No, we're going back to the source, back to the biographies to get to know him better. That's what we're doing together as a church. And so if you're new here this Sunday or maybe you've been with us for a while, jump into this series. You can do those readings with us throughout the week and then come on in here on Sunday morning and we're going to talk about Jesus. That's what we're doing. I've shared this with you before that the first time I read the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I was 18 years old. It was during a season where I had left a church community and was just reading the Gospels for myself. And so I was reading those books in isolation. And I don't want to date myself too much, but when I read the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the internet was kind of like a new thing. And so if I had questions about the book, what I was reading, I couldn't like Google it. I don't think Google existed quite yet, right? And so I was reading these books without commentary, without a church family, without a pastor to help and guide me along the way. And so as I made my way through those books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I had a fair share of questions that went unanswered. And the passage that we're going to look at today, I had a big question about. We're going to take a look at this occasion where Jesus is sent by God to be tempted by Satan. And my big question about this occasion, my big question about this passage is, why? Why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to go through this experience? And so fortunately, since I was 18, from now I've had the opportunity to read some commentaries and go to Bible college and go to seminary. And so I've got some understanding of perhaps why this took place, because there's a lot of questions about this passage. The big question is why? Like, Jesus, did you have something to prove to Father God? Because some people speculate that. You know, maybe Father God sent Jesus through this period of being tempted so he could prove himself to Father God. But does that make sense? I mean, God, God the Father and God the Son, they're, they're one and the same. They're equal. And so God the Father knows that he can trust God the Son. Some people wonder, well, did Jesus have to prove something to himself by going through this process? Have to prove that he was tough enough and strong enough to endure ministry? I'm like, well, that, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, Jesus knows who he is. He knows the Father. He knows that he's equal to Father God. And I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was called to do and knew that he had, through God, the power to do what he was called to do in this world. Some people wonder, well, did Jesus have to prove himself to Satan? To the enemy. I think, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, because Satan, the enemy, knows exactly who Jesus is, knows he's the Son of God, and he's got nothing to prove. Jesus has nothing to prove to Satan. If you go through the ministry, as we go through the ministry of Jesus, we'll see that he spends no time trying to prove himself to anyone. He is who he is, the Son of the living God sent to save the world, and he does what the Savior does. He does not need to prove himself to anyone. I'll take that applause any day, by the way. Amen. He is who he is, and he does what he does. Let's take a look at this passage. We got just a glimpse of it this morning from Walt. I'm going to take a look at some more verses here, but we'll start 
with Matthew chapter 4 with verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, if you want to look it up on your app, Matthew 1. And so Jesus, we talked about this last week, Jesus has just gone through this baptism. He showed up in a line with a bunch of sinners to be baptized by John the Baptist. Goes through this experience, and then right after this happened, God the Father leads God the Son into the wilderness. And here's what happens. Jesus, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I feel like that's where we have to stop for just a moment. To be tempted by the devil. Now, there's a lot of ideas about the devil and who he is and what he is, and there's a lot of like folklore and maybe even religious folklore about the devil, but there are things we know for certain about the devil, and there are other things that we don't know for certain. The devil is referred to by different names, and what we can say for certain is that there is such a thing as the devil, as Satan. It's not some kind of boogeyman. He is a real entity. It's a real thing. He's known as Satan. He's known as the devil. He's known as the father of lies. That's one of the titles that Jesus gives him. He's known as the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, and even the prince of this world. So there is such a thing as the devil. After fasting, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. You don't say, right? Of course he was hungry. And so Father God sends Jesus into the wilderness. This was probably somewhere around Jericho where Jesus was based on the geography of that time and being led right from the Jordan River to this, this wilderness. And so he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and people say, well, is that possible? Can a human being survive for that long? And all, is I, all I can say is that it has been done. And so I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, this was a true fast, Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And I made my little joke about it, and he was hungry. But I believe that Matthew included this line for a very important reason. He wants to let us know that Jesus, even though he's one with God, he is now in his human form, and to go 40 days without food or water would make someone hungry. So he is hungry. He is weak. He is vulnerable at this point in his human form. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Something important to clarify, you go back to the original Greek and that word if, it's not like questioning, hey, are you the Son of God or not? No, it's more the word since. Since you are the Son of God, you can do this. Some of you coming up through high school or college took uh, like a class on logic or, or critical thinking or even philosophy where you have to form these if-then statements. Does that sound familiar to anyone? If this is the case, then that must be true. Since this is the case, then you must be able to do this. And Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, which you are, then you have the authority and you have the ability to tell these stones to become bread. See, what Satan is tempting Jesus with is disobedience to the Father, and he's using food. <laughs> Here you are. You are weak. Here's something to eat. But it's more than just satiating hunger that the devil is tempting Jesus with. He's tempting Jesus to abuse his power and abuse his authority. I know that Father God has said, thou shalt not. I know that Father God has put you through this period of time where you're supposed to be fasting. But you're God too, Jesus. You're God too. 
And if you're God too, you should have the authority to exercise your own will. And if you're hungry, you can command stones to become bread. So you're God. Just make some bread. Just do this. You know, it's interesting. The first time that we see Satan appear is in the book of Genesis, and he appears in the form of a serpent or a snake. And he's there in the Garden of Eden. And we go back to that time, and some people interpret that whole sequence of events as metaphor, as figurative, and I really believe it's all literal. So there's this time where Satan appears, and he tempts Eve with the fruit of a tree, with food. There's a similarity there. He tempts her with food, and he says to her, did God really tell you you're not allowed to eat from the fruit of any of these trees? He baits Eve into a conversation. Now, Father God had just restricted one tree, (laughs) one tree. I mean, that's the only rule they had back in the days of Adam and Eve is don't eat from the fruit of this one tree. And so the tempter, Satan, the deceiver, he baits Eve into this conversation. Did God say you can't eat from any of these trees? And she says, well, no, 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 we can eat from all these trees except, except that one. We eat from it, we're going to die. And Satan says, no, 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 you've been misinformed by God. You've been misinformed. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you're not going to die. And so Satan is bending the truth a little bit. I mean, literally, if you eat the fruit, you're not going to die there in that moment, but you will eventually die. And this is how the deceiver works. I mean, boldface, blatant lies are easy to detect, but if someone just, whoop, twists the truth a few degrees off from reality, it's tougher to spot. And so Satan says to Eve, like, like, you're not going to die. The reason that God has withheld this fruit from you is because he knows if you eat it, you will become like God. There's the temptation. Eat this fruit. Not only does it look really tasty, not only is it really good, but it will make you like God. And Eve takes the bait. Eve eats the fruit. Eve disobeys God and consumes that fruit because it looked good to eat, but more importantly, she wanted to be like God. And now here is Satan tempting Jesus with food and saying, you are God. Take this stone and make it into bread and eat it. You are already. It's not like Eve. You are already God. It's different this time. You are God. So take this stone and make it into bread and eat it. How does Jesus respond? Verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written. That's important. Jesus relies on the written word of God as his defense against the enemy. Now, those of you who have been with us for a long time here at Hope Community Church, a couple times a year, I make my big case for why we should be reading the Bible and why we should be studying the Bible and why this should be part of our routine. Well, here's why. Jesus, the Son of God, every word He speaks is the Word of God, and yet He relies on the written Scriptures to go back and counterattack Satan with this passage. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't need, I don't need bread. I need the Word of God. Then the devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. How do, you, how do you visualize this happening? Is this some kind of like supernatural thing where Satan just whoosh, and they're all of a sudden there? I don't, I, don't, I don't know why it would be. I think they just left the desert. 
And I think these two people, you know, Satan in some kind of a form, and Jesus, of course, in his human form, they just walked into the temple. You, are you visualizing this? And all the people around had no idea who they were watching. Walk into the temple, walk up to the highest point. And there's a very thin, emaciated-looking Jesus because he hasn't eaten in a while, being brought up to the highest point of the temple. And what does Satan say? If, again, since, since you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written... Here you go. Did you catch that? So he said, well, two can play at this game, right? The devil knows the Bible. He knows Scripture. I mean, he's had nothing but time to learn and study and figure out how to twist and take it out of context and misuse it for his own purposes. You want to quote Scripture? I'll quote Scripture at you, Jesus. For it is written, you just jump down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Go ahead. Jump off this thing. What is, what is Satan really tempting Jesus with? Saying, Jesus, just display your power right here in the temple. Show everybody who you are. Do this miraculous thing. And then all the, the priests and the scribes and the members of the Sanhedrin will look up and see you and know who you are. Do it, Jesus. Show them who you are. It's interesting to look back at the history of this time because there was a belief among some of the Sanhedrin, some of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests, that when Jesus showed up, when the Messiah would arrive, that he would go to the temple and do this very thing, that he would show up and jump down and be caught by angels and prove his power and prove who he is. And you'll notice that, again, like I said earlier, Jesus never wastes time trying to prove himself to other people. Jesus did not go to the temple and say, hey, I'm here to be assessed by you and to take your test and to prove that I'm the Messiah. No. Where does he go? Where did he go? Out into the wilderness with John the Baptist to stand among the sinners. And so what Satan is tempting Jesus with here is show yourself. Prove your power to these people. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. No, Satan. I will not disobey my orders. I will not disobey Father God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Now, this does seem to be a supernatural type of event because how could you take in all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor? So Satan has him there looking at all this, and here's what he says. All this I will give you, he said. There's questions about this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How, Satan, how, how does he have the authority or the ability to give all of this to Jesus? Either he's lying and he can't really offer Jesus this authority, he can't really offer Jesus this kingship over everything, or he's telling the truth. And so there's a lot of speculation about what's happening here, but when we dig more into the New Testament and church history, there's this idea that's been formed. This doctrine, this theology about what, what exactly is going on here. Well, it seems like we go back to Genesis. It seems like, well, God gave man authority over the earth. Gave Adam and Eve, they ruled over the earth, but they disobeyed God, and somehow a transfer of power occurred. Or now Satan is, as Jesus calls him, the prince of this earth. 
Satan did have some kind of power, some kind of ability. I believe he had the ability to offer Jesus some sort of kingship over all the earth. I believe that the prince of this world, Satan, had the ability to give this to Jesus. He says, Jesus, this is what I can do for you. You can be king over all of this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. That's all you have to do. You realize what Satan is offering Jesus. He's giving him a shortcut. Let's just get there. Jesus goes through his life, does his ministry, receives persecution, is criticized, judged, continually assessed, suffers physical abuse, dies on a cross, goes through tremendous, I mean, frankly, torture of all kinds throughout his life. The ultimate sacrifice on the cross, the ultimate suffering on the cross, and then is resurrected. And after his resurrection, he says to his disciples, now that I've gone through all this, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that I've gone through this process, all the authority on heaven and earth has been given to me by Father God. And so in this moment, Satan is saying, we can skip all that. <laughs> you want authority over the kingdoms of the earth? I can give it to you right now. Now, let's skip all that stuff. Skip the persecution. Skip the judgment. Skip the physical abuse. Skip the people talking smack about you. Skip the crucifix. Skip it all. I can give it to you now. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Here's, here's a shortcut. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended him. And so here's something important to note, that when Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, when he speaks the word, away from me, Satan, Satan must obey that command. He cannot stay in his presence anymore. And again, Jesus quotes scripture, says we are to worship God only. I will not disobey Father God. I will not bow down and worship you. I will not take this shortcut. Now, don't go fooling yourselves here, right? Because some people have this idea that everything that Jesus went through, well, it was easy for him because he was God. Well, Paul tells us, he explains this to us in Philippians chapter 2, that when Jesus enters into this world, he empties himself of all of his greatness, of his high standing, of his power. He becomes humble for our sake. And so, what you see in the ministry of Jesus is, yes, he can tap into the power of God, and he does perform these signs and wonders and miracles. He can do all of those things. But what you see is that he never abuses the power of God and he never uses the power of God for his own benefit. He never does. Whenever he taps into that supernatural power of God, he's doing it for the sake of other people. So don't go fooling yourself into thinking that this period of fasting and temptation was easy for Jesus. It was not but Jesus went through all of these things not to prove himself to God, because Father God already knows. He didn't have to prove anything to himself or prove anything to Satan or prove anything to anybody else. Jesus went through all of these things for your sake to show you something about himself, to show you how he is like you in his nature and to show you how he is different from you. Jesus went through all of these things for your sake. He left heaven and was born in a barn for your sake. 
He stood among the sinners and was baptized by John for your sake. He endured this period of fasting and temptation for your sake. He endured three years of ministry and ridicule and persecution for your sake. Being accused of being an agent of Satan himself, he endured all of that for your sake. And before he was put on a cross, he was beaten within an inch of his life for your sake, and he died on that cross for your sake. And if we go back to this moment where Jesus is tempted, what is he showing us about his nature? In some ways, he is like you. In some ways, he is like us. But in other ways, he is very, very different. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses a certain terminology to explain who Jesus is. He calls him the second Adam or the last Adam. The last Adam. And Paul creates this contrast here. You had a, a first Adam who was made out of the dust, the dirt of the earth and formed. And then you had the second Adam or the last Adam who comes down from heaven. And that first Adam, when he was tempted by Satan, he failed. He disobeyed God. He gave in to temptation. He failed. But the second Adam, this last Adam, Jesus, he succeeds. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. You know, Eve took that fruit. She ate from it. She shared it with her husband, Adam. He ate from it. They both disobeyed God, and God comes down from heaven, and he says to them, what is this you have done? And they don't even apologize. Do you know that? Eve's, Eve blames the snake. It was the snake that deceived me. Adam, do you know who Adam blames? He blames the woman, and he blames God. It was the woman you put here with me. It's the woman's fault, and God, it's your fault that I sinned. That's what the first Adam did. Disobeyed, sinned, and then blamed God. The second Adam, the second Adam obeys. And even though he has the authority to make decisions for himself, he submitted himself to the Father's will. He obeys. He succeeds where the first Adam failed. We are like that first Adam. We carry that same sin nature with us. And how often? How often do we fail ourselves? How often do we fail our families? How often do we fail to live up to God's standards? How often do we step outside of God's boundaries for our lives? We sin. We fail. But where we fail, Jesus succeeds. When we sin, we sin. We make those mistakes. We step outside of God's boundaries. We give in to temptation. We give in to temptation, and where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And we, being made like that first Adam, you know, we can't seem to do anything that's good enough to, to cleanse ourselves from sin. We cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. We just can't. There's no amount of good that we can do to wash ourselves of our sinfulness, to absolve our own sins. We can't do that. But where we fail... Jesus succeeds. He can absolve us from our sins. He can cleanse us of our sins. And we human beings, being like that first Adam, we human beings, there's nothing we can do to earn our way into heaven. There's nothing we can do. We fail. But what we can't do 
Jesus has done for us. He has made heaven available to us. And so we cannot, friends, listen, we cannot put our trust in ourselves because we're like that fallen man. We're like that first Adam. And when we trust in ourselves and our own goodness and I'm going to earn my way into heaven and I'm a good person, we cannot do it. But when we transfer our trust over to Jesus, ah, that's when we receive the forgiveness of sins. That's when we receive the gift of eternal life. What we can't do for ourselves, Jesus has done for us. What we can't do for ourselves, wash away our sins, enter into heaven, earn access to heaven, what we can't do for ourselves, Jesus has done for us. And what's required of us is to take our trust, take it off of ourselves, and place it on to Jesus. Amen? Let's stand as we join together in our closing prayer. Jesus, we thank you for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Jesus, we look to you, we place our trust in you because we know we're like that first man. We know that we're weak. We know we disobey. We fail. We're flawed. We're human. But Jesus, you are perfect. You are sinless. You did not cave into temptation. You are powerful. So we turn to you for our salvation. We trust in you for our salvation. Lord Jesus, as we continue our way through this this series, as we make our way through the Gospels, continue to reveal yourself to us, reveal your power to us, show us your nature. And as we go through this series together, allow us to increase in our love and our trust for you. Father God, we want to thank you for giving us this time where we could gather together and worship you. And Father, now that this worship service is over, we ask that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Father God, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve one another, by the way that we love and serve you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.